there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The title of my talk this evening is Acceptance. Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist from Vienna who was in a concentration camp during World War II, learned the great lesson, even though he was not a Christian and never really acknowledged that he was a religious man, he learned a tremendous spiritual lesson which is clearly taught in the Bible that a man may choose his attitude. He said in the concentration camp, every freedom that can possibly be taken away from a man was taken with that single exception, the freedom to choose his attitude. There were those whose physical, mental, emotional, emotional and spiritual survival depended on the attitude that they chose. There were people who obviously died because they did not have any hope left and they just made up their minds to die. It's a very fascinating book. The title is The Man's Search for, for Meaning. I believe that's the correct title. Frankel is spelled F-R-A-N-K-L. I believe he's still alive. I just read an interview with him in a magazine just a few months ago. And the interviewer asked him point blank if he believed in God. And he evaded the question because he said, I don't want to be labeled as religious because then no one will read my book. They'll just say, take it away. That's a that's that religious psychiatrist. But it is very clear that God was speaking to him loudly during his time in that concentration camp. And he said that there were always those few people who would walk around the camp and bring comfort to other inmates. And although they only received one piece of bread per week, there were those who would find somebody who was in worse shape than they were and give it to them. They were people who had chosen their attitude. My question tonight to you is what attitude are we going to choose when, for example, we suffer? We have the power to choose our attitude. I sat next to a lady at a luncheon one time who told me that when she and her husband had been married for a very short time, they learned that he had an incurable and very slowly debilitating disease. And she said, when we went home, we sat down together and asked what we were going to do. And she said, we decided that we could be miserable for 25 years or however long it would last, or we could be happy. And we chose to be happy. And she said, we had 25 wonderful years before he died. Now, we've talked about incarnation and how it is only here in this world, in this physical body, with all its weaknesses and deterioration, that we incarnate the life of Christ. 
Our question is, what do others see in us? We've talked about sacrament. Will the reality of our trust in God show sovereignty? Can God really be trusted to manage our lives better than we can manage them? Seems like an absurd question, doesn't it? And yet, without articulating it that clearly, that is the way we act sometimes, as though we really have a better idea of what will make ourselves happy than God has. Can he be trusted to manage our lives better than we can manage him? Well, I think since he does manage to keep the galaxies running smoothly and the planets in the places where they belong and the tide coming up and down at exactly the right moment per day and to give that crab that little brush on the end of that limb, maybe, perhaps, just possibly, we might be able to concede that he is capable indeed of doing a slightly better job than you and I might cobble up are some of the things that have happened to us out of his control, not if we believe in his sovereign God. We talked about servanthood. Do I present God with an agenda, or am I totally his handmaiden, trustfully, quietly waiting for his orders? The next subject was sacrifice. When I have offered myself as a living sacrifice, do I fear missing out on some of the best things in life. Young women have sometimes come to me and said that they were scared to death when they hear my testimony. Well, scared of what? Well, what if God did to me what he did to you? Well, what is that? Well, then they go through several things that they would dread. And I remind them that God never did anything to me that isn't for me. That's exactly what my dentist said to me one time when I said to him, what are you going to do to me next time? And he said, not two, four. When I question these girls who are so terrified that they might be asked to do some of the things that I was asked to do or to go through some of those things, they just say, well, I mean, like, you know, um, it's just really scary, you know. I mean, like, I'm, wow. I'm like, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm really serious about this, Mrs. Elliot. I mean, it really does scare me to death, you know. But you just think, I really want to do the will of God, but what if, what if he did to me what he did to you? When I have offered myself as a living sacrifice, do I fear missing out on some of the best things in life? Well, by whose judgment is this the best thing or that the best thing? God has promised that he will give the best. What's the line of that hymn that I'm trying to think of? Um, He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. And we talked this afternoon about suffering. Is it useless? Is it the result of God's negligence or my own sin? What shall I do with it? 
incarnation, sacrament, sovereignty, servanthood, sacrifice, suffering, and now acceptance. Acceptance begins with faith. I would have no reason simply to accept the awful things that happen if I had no idea that somebody was governing this world and that my individual life was completely under his control, the control of one who has perfect wisdom, perfect justice, and perfect love. We have to ask ourselves repeatedly, especially when the temptations and the dark times come, do I really believe this? Do I still believe this? Is this where I hang my soul? And I told you that those three eternal and unshakable verities were what held me and comforted me during Ad's illness. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Nothing can possibly interfere with those facts. Do I really believe that God is governing this world and everything that touches me with perfect wisdom, justice, and love? And I want to read again the quotation from E.B. Pusey. I read it over and over again myself. I think you can bear hearing it. This, then, is of faith, that everything, the very least, or what seems to us great, every change of the seasons, everything which touches us in mind, body, or estate, whether brought about through this outward senseless nature or by the will of man, good or bad, is overruled to each of us by the all-holy and all-loving will of God. Whatever befalls us, however it befalls us, we must receive with open hands as the will of God. If it befalls us through man's negligence or ill will or anger, still it is in even the least circumstance to us the will of God. For if the least thing could happen to us without God's permission, it would be something out of God's control. God's providence or his love would not be what they are. Almighty God himself would not be the same God, not the God whom we believe, adore, and love. Surely it was those truths that sustained John the Baptist when he was in prison. His imprisonment certainly befell him because of the ill will and anger of a heathen king. Why was the faithful John exiled on the island of Patmos? Well, for his obedience to God. And I love that scene where he has this amazing, dazzling vision of Christ. He heard a voice that was speaking, and he turned, and he saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And then he placed his right hand 
the one that held the seven stars, upon me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. and Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Don't you love that? Don't be afraid. I was dead. I am alive forever. I have the keys. Now, the one who has the keys is the one who's in charge, isn't he? John, the, John was not out of the will of God by being in that place of suffering and exile and undoubtedly great loneliness, and it is assumed that he was a very old man at that time, undoubtedly experiencing the weaknesses and the deprivations and the limitations of old age. But the least, if, if the least thing could happen to us without God's permission, it would be something out of God's control. Psalm 16.5 is certainly one of my life verses now. I've referred to it earlier. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup and have made my lot secure. My lot is what happens to me, that which comes by the will of the powers that rule my destiny, a share. My lot includes my birth, my training, my job, my hardships, the people I work with, my marital status, hindrances, obstacles, accidents, opportunities, etc. Everything constitutes my lot. This is the portion, the assignment, the allotment, which this sovereign, loving, wise, powerful Lord has assigned to me. Do you remember speaking of events being the sacraments of the will of God? What happened to Mary and Martha? It was a happening, wasn't it? Their brother died. Jesus didn't come when they needed him. It was too late. Now note this. The story says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what did he do? stayed where he was two more days. How strange. And he said, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. When he arrived at the house, of course, both Mary and Martha said to him the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they were in despair, in grief. And his reply was, I'm glad I was not here so that you may believe. What do you suppose they made of that? But he had something inestimably more wonderful than what they had wished for, which hadn't happened. Of course, he could have healed him. He let him die. And that's one of those miracles which I think uh, George MacDonald was the originator of, of this idea. Maybe he got it from somebody much earlier, but C.S. Lewis repeats it in some of his works, that a miracle is something done small and fast that God does all the time, slowly and on a larger scale. God raised that one man from the dead. 
that's a miracle done small and fast. Now, of course, it wasn't small in their eyes, but by comparison with, with what it's going to be when he raises all the dead, it's small. So they had to suffer in order to see this wonderful thing, something more wonderful than they had dreamed. God was, Jesus was showing his power and showing them that their sorrow and their lack of faith needed to be corrected. That God always has something better in mind. Now, of course, for us, God doesn't seem to be doing miracles like that anymore. But he is reminding us that this is going to happen on a much larger scale and that the dead are going to rise. So it's slowly and in God's time that those things happen. You and I wish that we could see some miracles such as we see in the New Testament. And the Lord is saying, I have other things for you now. I want you to learn to trust me in other ways. But he purposely waited in order that they might believe. And I think he still does that with us quite often. I think my major problems with finding the will of God usually have something to do with timing because God's timetable is always different from mine. He wants me to wait in order to believe, in order to learn to put my faith in his timing. They had to suffer in order to see the glory that would be revealed. Jesus tells all of us, if you suffer with me, you will also reign with me. So the suffering is a preliminary to the glory. The fact that we're not going to see somebody raised from the dead here on earth should still remind us of the story of Lazarus and that it is he who raised Lazarus who is still in charge. The glory will be revealed after the suffering. And this is it's the same for us. I have to point out that I would not be here tonight if it hadn't been for losing Jim. That was what precipitated my starting to write. It wouldn't have happened. As George MacDonald says, you never know what might have happened or what could have happened. We only know what did happen. And this is what did happen. It happened for God's glory and for all the holy purposes, very few of which we probably know. But someday we'll see that tapestry unfolded. Have you thought about the fact that he had you in mind when he allowed those five men to be killed? I wouldn't be here. If God wanted me to be here tonight and to have things to tell you, to talk to you about, that's what had to be the, the one of the preliminaries, one of the prerequisites. And that's only one example in our lives, but you can look back and see your own life and the things which would not have happened if something else hadn't happened. And if it's a disaster, think about the ways in which God has worked since then, the things that he has taught you through it. And who of us would not acknowledge that by far the deepest spiritual lessons we learn are through suffering. It takes the deep water and the hot fire and the dark valley. The verse that came to me when I received my 
uh, shortwave message that Jim was missing was Isaiah 43.2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. And I can stand here tonight and testify to you that he has never broken that promise. He kept those words through those three or four or five agonizing days when we were waiting to discover whether our husbands were indeed dead or alive. He didn't give me a bridge over troubled waters, but he kept the promise that when I passed through the waters, he would be with me. He was. The great lesson in how to handle how do you handle this, people are always saying. Amy Carmichael, in one of her dialogues with God, in the little book called His Thoughts Said, wonderful book, here again she's using the, the masculine pronoun, or the masculine word he said in speaking of herself, and then God's answers. He said, I will forget the dying faces, the empty places. Excuse me, I gave you the wrong source for this. I didn't have it written in poetry form. This is, this is a poem, and it's from Toward Jerusalem, not from his thoughts said. He said, I will forget the dying faces, the empty places. They shall be filled again. O oh, voices moaning deep within me, cease. But vain the word, vain, vain. Not in forgetting lieth peace. And then the stanzas go on. The next one is not in aloofness lieth peace. Not in the submission of defeat. But then he says, I will accept the breaking sorrow which God tomorrow will to his son explain. Then did the turmoil deep within him cease. Not vain the word, not vain, for in acceptance lieth peace. That was the next great lesson that God brought to me. Not only would he go with me through the deep waters, but the, the, the one thing that he was requiring of me in response to this was acceptance. And it will not be found in forgetting. It will not be found in busyness or in aloofness or the submission of defeat. It will be found in acceptance. We had a lady in our church who was like a tigress in a corner. She lashed out with all claws bared at everybody that approached her. I've never seen an angrier, more miserable person in my life. All I knew about her was that she was a widow. I have no idea whether that had, whether that was what was eating her or whether it was something else. But at any rate, it was very obvious that she had never accepted whatever this thing was. Perhaps it was some great evil perpetrated against her by someone. But there wasn't anything that anyone was able to do to get near that woman and comfort her. She destroyed every small group that she ever joined. She disrupted all kinds of things in the church, and I happened to be seated opposite her one night at a church supper, and she got up to go and get a cup of coffee or something and came back 
and the sweet girl who was waiting on tables had taken away her dessert plate that had about two bites left of a piece of pie. Well, that lady, she said, Who took my pie? Where's my pie? And I said, The girl that's serving the tables there. So she calls this girl over. She says, Where's my piece of pie? And the girl said, Oh, I'm so sorry. She said, I didn't think that you were going to finish that. I thought you were finished. I wasn't finished. And the girl said, Oh, I will certainly get you another piece of pie. I don't want another piece of pie. I want the piece of pie that I had here. I wanted those two bites. That's the way she was with everybody. I mean, this poor girl was just trembling in her boots. There wasn't anything that anybody could do for her. In acceptance lieth peace. My heart went out to that woman. I just thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if somehow or other I could be an instrument of peace to her? And she came to my house one night for a committee meeting, and she happened to be late. And without any preliminaries whatsoever, we had already started the meeting, and she came bursting through the door, and she said, Nobody told me what time this thing was. I, didn't, I had a terrible time finding this place. She said, I don't know what's the matter with you people. On and on. I mean, it was just, everybody is like this. I don't know where the poor lady is now. She left our church a long time ago, probably destroying another one. <laughs> but we probably all know somebody like this. Somebody who is going to carry that anger, probably directed primarily at God, through life. They will not lay it down. They will not let it go because this was a real evil that was done against them. Forgetting that everyone experiences evil. Now how are we to do this? How do we accept this? Six things. Number one, choose your attitude. Second Corinthians 12:10 says for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses. Does that come naturally? Certainly not. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. This is a voluntary volitional choice, a willed choice. I choose to delight in weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the paradoxes of the cross, I bring to the cross my weakness and I receive God's strength as I bring him my sins and I receive his righteousness. I bring him my sorrows, I receive his joy. For Christ's sake. Secondly, I recommend that you get down on your knees and offer your pain to God. If that is the only sacrifice that you have to offer then, a broken heart or whatever, however you would describe it, whatever this pain is, you know you can't handle it by yourself. You don't need to go to 39 of your closest friends to try to get them to help you bear your burden. God does give us human comforters very often. But let's remember that they also need comforting and that they are bearing burdens of their own. And scripture says that we are all to bear our own burdens and we are also to bear the burdens of others. 
but let's never think that we have a right to ask someone else to bear our burdens, not to ask them. When God brings it, that's a great gift and a great blessing. But the first thing I should do before crying on anybody's shoulder is to offer my pain to God. And of course we can't help that question, what good is that? But God does know how to bring good out of evil. God knows what to do with your pain a whole lot better than you do. So let him have it. Open your hands and lift it up to him. And this probably has to be repeated many, many times. Don't let Satan discourage you by saying, well, you're a fake, you're a hypocrite, you know, that really didn't work, that little neat trick that Elizabeth Elliot gave you, it's a bunch of baloney, and you know you feel just as bad now as you did ten minutes ago when you surrendered that to Jesus. You don't have to address Satan, just ignore him, or do what Jesus did in the in wilderness, and say, it is written, it is written. It is written. If Jesus knows how to make five loaves and two fishes go around to a multitude of 15 or 20,000 people, then he knows what to do with your pain. That pitiful little lunch looked as useless for that crowd as anything could have looked. But if your life is broken when given to Jesus, it may be because pieces will feed a multitude and a loaf would satisfy only a little lad. So you offer him your pain. He may break you in ways which will feed a multitude. Number three, receive what God has given. Open hands. This thing that you cannot change, you receive. This is a willed choice. Remember, <clears throat> to love God is to love his will. This thing that has happened is for you, even in the least circumstance, the will of God. Whatever befalls us, however we, it befalls us, we must receive as the will of God. Number four, renew your commitment to trust him. He does know what he's doing. Renew your commitment to trust. He does know what he's doing. Number five, praise him, as Habakkuk did. When there was no, there were no figs on the tree, no grapes on the vine, no cattle in the stall, what did Habakkuk say he would do? Yet will I, what? Rejoice. He isn't, wasn't feeling good about having no figs and no grapes and no cattle, but he was choosing to rejoice in the Lord. You don't have to be tickled to death because something dreadful has happened in your life, but you still know that you can rejoice in the Lord because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Nothing is going to change that. Nothing is going to change his nature. Is your trust absolutely, firmly founded on Christ himself? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he has said? 
to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. And I particularly love that hymn, not only because we sang it in our family prayers very often, but because the second and third verses are taken directly from those verses in Isaiah that I quoted. When through the deep waters thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. Um, I'm getting it mixed up. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee, thy trials to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. God knows how to sanctify your distress, to make it holy, but it has to be given, it has to be relinquished and offered to God. So having done these four steps, when you get to number five, you can praise him. The psalmist said in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, What time, or when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Emotion and will in the same verse. When I am afraid, that is an emotion, what am I going to do about it? I will trust. And that's a choice. It is a chosen attitude. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid choosing and number six do the next thing did I read that poem to you on Saturday can't remember if I read the whole thing they tell me I did okay <laughs> well I got it in my notebook that's over here on the piano From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the hours the quiet words ring, like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, child of the king. Trust it with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all resultings. We talked about leaving the results of your obedience in God's hands. Leave all resultings, do the next thing. Looking to Jesus ever serener, working or suffering be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then, 
as he beckons thee, say it with me, do the next thing. It is the most wonderfully comforting maxim. And it's what got me through the next years in the jungle. I was I stayed in Ecuador for eight years after Jim was killed. And it was just a case of doing the next thing. There was always too much to do, impossible things to do, and you just do the next thing. And it just, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Now, who has assigned me this difficulty? We've talked about God having assigned our portion and our lot. Well, first of all, people. Those who annoy and trouble me are instruments for the accomplishment of God's tender and wise purposes. Nothing else is going to bring contentment, rest, or peace but seeing God in everything. His thoughts toward us are peace, not evil. Jeremiah 29:11. God has assigned me the difficulties, but they came through. This is probably not well stated there. Um, it's people that brought the difficulty, but I have to remember that God is in charge of that. And it says he has assigned me my portion and my lot. So he measured it precisely according to your need. Another source is accidents. Any situation which seems to us a disaster and puts us in a quandary as to how things will ever work out. We don't know the way ahead. Remember that Jesus is the way. Stick with him. He will take care of you. We are never hindered from God's will so long as we stay put on him, with him, in him, live and move and have our being. You are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are what? Everlasting arms. He is not going to let go. He has not let go. And he is not going to let go. Another difficulty is not just people and accidents, but limitations. You remember the woman that came rushing up bubbling and gushing to Jesus and said, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the breasts that suckled thee. Do you remember what Jesus' response to that was? That was pure sentiment in that woman, just gushing. It was also a way of absolving herself of responsibility, I think, because she knew there was only one woman in the world that would ever live that would have the privilege that Mary had. And wasn't she lucky? But poor little me, you know, I haven't been given anything quite like that. I have all these limitations. And Jesus' reply nailed her conscience by saying, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Yes, Mary had a wonderful privilege. Yes, she was highly exalted. She was most blessed among women. But I'm going to tell you something that every last one of you is responsible for, Jesus says. Those who hear the word of God and obey it. And in verse 29, he talks about the wicked asking for miracles. We would love to have the spiritual experience or the God-given gift that God has given to somebody else. And we like to settle down in our poor little pity party in, in the corner and think, well, I was behind the door when God gave out the gifts. 
And so I can never serve him like this fortunate person. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 11, 27. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. We will not boast beyond our proper limits, Paul says, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us. Reference 2 Corinthians 10, 13. Acceptance of limitations. Paul tried to stick to the territory that God had given him and not presume to take credit for somebody else's work. 1 Corinthians 12:29 Are all apostles? All prophets? Are all teachers? The answer is no. But once again, we are nailed in our consciences by eagerly desire the best gifts. And what is the best gift? It's unfortunate there's the chapter break in there between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Those breaks are not inspired. Because Paul goes on immediately after saying we should eagerly desire the best gifts, then he goes on to describe that by far the best gift is love. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. It is designated, measured precisely. Are you upset? because you've been hindered from doing what you thought God wanted you to do. His will is always different from what we expect. Christ is the way out of the labyrinth of the world into freedom and a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new act of creation, as one translation puts it. It's nothing magical. It's not an escape from limitations. There's no mysterious inner experience or extraordinary heavenly eruptions. No fact has changed in my life. I have the same talents, the same health, the same family, the same social position, my property. These things remain pretty much as they were. The daily routine continues to make the same demands. But, as someone has said, a door has opened and the crossing over to Christ has been made possible by acceptance. In acceptance lieth peace. Lars says, I still have two minutes. Okay. We could never have, be, have begun to learn these things if Christ himself had not become human. We have new life. We are new creatures. We have a transformed vision helped by grace. When we live in Christ, relationships change, if only in our becoming more patient and understanding, kinder and more alert. What a temptation it is to try to change other people. Relationships will change as we become more patient and understanding. No one takes reality as seriously as the saint whose dangerous path allows of no fantastic experimentation. I don't know the author of that one, but it's not Elizabeth Elliot. No one takes reality as seriously as the saint whose dangerous path allows of no fantastic experimentation.
I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.